Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, it's a European banking succession special. After UBS chooses ING's Ralph Hamers to succeed Sergio Amotti, Barclays starts a search to replace Jess Staley, and HSBC finds its preferred external candidate, Jean-Pierre Moustier, would prefer to stay put at Unicredit. Just your typical few days in the sector. And we'll also be taking a look at JP Morgan's plans to launch a new digital bank in the UK. Joining me in the studio to discuss all of this are David Crow, Stephen Morris, and Nick McGaw from the FT. And our special guest down the line this week is Sir Mike Rake, former chairman of KPMG, WorldPay, BT, and EasyJet, but perhaps best known to our listeners as a non executive director and then deputy chairman of Barclays PLC. So let's start with European banking's Game of Thrones, which has played out in spectacular fashion in the last few days. UBS has appointed a new CEO. Barclays has started searching for one, apparently with added urgency. But HSBC has had its options limited by a reluctant CEO candidate. Let's start with the one appointment we are certain of. Dutchman Ralph Hamers of ING being named as the replacement for Sergio Amotti at Swiss bank UBS. Stephen, you are our European banking expert. How much of a surprise choice was this for UBS? Well, it certainly took a lot of people out in the market by surprise. I mean, a few people reacted initially with a kind of, really, this guy? But then when you look further into it, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, UBS has been going through a turbulent time of late it's had persistently high costs, and one of the main ways it's going to tackle this under the new CEO, Mr. Hamers, is by digitizing the bank, probably further cutting its Swiss branch network, and really trying to take out costs by overhauling the back office systems. He's also genuinely green conscious and eco-friendly, like he'll drive or be driven between Frankfurt and Amsterdam, as opposed to flying to keep his carbon footprint down. We know he's a Calvinist, he goes to church. And after a bit of a turbulent couple of years with Sergio Amotti and Andrea Orsell and Jörg Zeltner running the bank, it may be time for a bit of a quieter, more methodical period in the bank's development. But, you know, we shouldn't take away from Mr. Hamers. He's a highly qualified CEO who's run a big international European bank and has got through that period with some clouds over him due to the 900 million money laundering fine ING received in 2018, which meant he had to fire his CFO, essentially. But aside from that, he's kept his nose fairly clean and seems to be a more logical choice the longer you look at it after the initial shock. David, this now means we've got new CEOs at both UBS and Credit Suisse. What does this changing of the guard mean for those banks, do you think? Well, I think, you know, they're the first of many 
banks that are about to or have changed CEOs, there's a sort of synchronized changing of the guard taking place at the moment. And if you take Mr. Hamers, we've been told that he was also in the running for the HSBC job and that interest from HSBC was one of the things that forced UBS to kind of rush his appointment through. And I think that kind of bidding war, if you like, illustrates that there's a paucity of candidates out there and that it's very difficult to go fishing in the US where bank executives are paid a lot more and have a lot of their compensation locked up in deferred shares. So they cost a lot to buy out. So UBS doing it quite cleanly and doing it quite early is probably going to create problems for those banks that are doing it messily and later. (laughs) Yes, we'll we'll come on to some of the knock-on effects in a moment. But Mike, if I could just bring you in. Looking upon this from the outside, what do you think Mr Hamer's priorities should be? I think the first thing to say to your point, actually, is we need to remember that in today's world, running these very complex financial organisations with the level of regulation and scrutiny that they have, means there are not so many people who are both qualified and willing to carry out these roles. So to your point, I think you're always fishing in a small pond. And the characteristics that people are looking for, I think, are very much now, yes, strong leadership skills, resilient communication, engagement, integrity, but perhaps a little bit less flamboyant in style, which is important, I think, to the image of these institutions. And I think moving on, I think it's absolutely critical. All banks, to a greater or lesser degree, are suffering higher levels of capital, more regulation, finer interest rate margins, and are having to look to digitalization and technology to reduce their costs to improve their returns. Otherwise, the risk-return ratios are just not adequate, really, in many of the financial institutions in Europe for the risk that investors are taking, hence the very low share prices in some cases. So given what you're saying about the necessary skills and the jobs that await Mr. Hamers, is he the right man or the right fish for the job then? I am really not familiar with UBS or Mr. Heyman's. You know, I, I'm sure from all accounts, he's a very competent individual. Every single bank of one sort or another has had issues. And hopefully, you know, within those institutions, I think people have learned a lot. So I'm, I'm sure he's well aware of what he needs to do. Indeed. Well, let's turn to a bank that you do know particularly well, Barclays. Current chief executive, Jess Staley, for all his regulatory woes, isn't going anywhere just as yet. But we do hear that a Financial Conduct Authority investigation into his ties to Jeffrey Epstein, the paedophile financier, has focused minds on the succession plans at Barclays and certainly injected more urgency into the process. David, you've been following this. What is Barclays doing now? They are getting ready to start the search and to prepare for life after Mr. Staley. He's 63. Few people expected him to stay at the bank for very much longer. And so one would have expected them to start searching. My sense is that the amount of time he has left is less than it was before. You might have expected to see him going through to the end of next year. Now we're hearing, well, maybe the AGM is a good time for him to step down. So that's the middle of the year. And therefore, they don't really have a huge amount of time because they have to last six months or thereabouts for a search and a further six months for any gardening leave that somebody that's got a job elsewhere might need to complete. And I think as well, if Mr. Staley has to stand down early, 
as a result of this investigation or further revelations or what have you, then the bank would probably have to go for an interim arrangement. One of the interesting things about Barclays is the kind of lack of bench strength. There is not, we understand, a single internal candidate that they think is ready for the top job. Now, that's a pretty big indictment on the corporate governance of the bank. Certainly. I mean, Stephen, are you hearing who the external contenders might be? Well, there certainly are a few people knocking around who have experience running top banks, with the investment banking section of this being the most vital for Barclays, considering Jess Staley bet the house on being able to maintain a competitive investment bank, which he's done a a pretty decent job of whilst fending off the attentions of activist investor Edward Bramson. Christian Meisner has been linked to a lot of top roles at European banks. He's obviously the former head of investment banking at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Austrian-born, so experienced in Europe, having worked for Goldman and a few other places as well. Andrea Orsell, if he can persuade to drop his 100 million euro lawsuit against Anna Botin, is proven as a leader, if a bit of a hard-charging, demanding one, and certainly has the chops to take the axe to the investment bank, as he did at UBS with quite a lot of success We also shouldn't limit ourselves just to looking at the banking industry. Of course, if you look at HSBC, Mark Tucker, the chairman there, came from an insurer. Tijan Tiam, who did end under a cloud at Credit Suisse, he came across and made a decent fist of it after running insurer Prudential. So there are people out there and maybe some unexpected candidates to come back through. But as Mike said before, we're not talking about hundreds of people that can step in from day one and do this. And the more that get taken out of the pool by banks ahead of Barclays in the succession queue, the harder it will actually be for them to get their top person. That's true. Mike, you've served on the board at Barclays. You know the bank well. What do you make of Mr Staley's tenure? Briefly, I mean, my view is very clear. I think for the whole UK, particularly in a Brexit, it's very important that we have a British-based bank with investment banking, corporate lending and advisory and execution capabilities. I think it's important. And I think most people feel that. I think Jess... You know, I left at the end of 2015, having brought Jess in. I think generally people think he's done a very good job, restored the confidence of the bank. I think the results this time around were a bit overclouded by the FCA investigation, but were improving. So I think a lot has been achieved in a very difficult environment. Of course, it comes down to not only being able, but willing to take on these roles with the amount of focus you get. So I think for Barclays, indeed, at a time when HSBC, UBS and others are looking Credit Suisse possibly at successes, you know, getting the right person. I'm willing, frankly, to work in the current environment in the UK where the kind of income levels to get somebody from the US would be multiples of what Jess has been earning at Barclays. Therefore, these are impediments that have to be dealt with. So it is an important job. And Barclays, of course, having been forced through the forced retirement of Bob Diamond, therefore not having had the time at that point to have succession planning in place led to the decisions that we had to make that you're only too familiar with that ended up with just coming in later. And I think, again, it will be critical for the board to try and really get this right. And I think they're probably going to have to make sure they have enough time to get the right person. Otherwise, you've got to ask the chairman to step in for a period, as John McFarlane did very ably, I think, during the period when you're continuing to look for a successor. Indeed. And let's then turn to HSBC quickly. I mean, here... We know who is not a contender to be the new CEO after Jean-Pierre Moustier, boss of Italy's Unicredit, rather ruled himself out. He had been identified as the preferred external candidate, which set up a two-horse race with Noel Quinn, acting interim CEO since last August. But now 
We hear Mr Moustier has told Mark Tucker that he's not interested. So, Mike, how do you see the situation panning out and what are the priorities? Look, I think HSBC faces a lot of issues that major European-based banks face. They have a very strong Asia-Pacific base, which allowed them to withstand the problems of 2006 and the acquisition of household. But they've been a little bit, you know, several of the banks accident-prone in succession planning. And it's a large and complex bank with its roots in Asia, therefore finding the right person with the right characteristics. And the other point I'd add that we have to really remember, particularly in UK-based banks, is the critical importance of the relationship between the chairman and the chief executive. These jobs are too big for one person. They need to work together. They need to share suddenly the burden of responsibility of communication engagement with regulators, politicians, press shareholders, as well as their own staff. So to work effectively, they have to work in tandem and the chemistry of the relationship has to be right. So that's an added complication. And if you have a strong chairman with an executive background, obviously you've got to find the right balance when you bring somebody in. And David, where is the race currently at? Well, I think it's worth just sort of going back and reminding listeners of how we ended up here. Mark Tucker, the chairman, ousted then Chief Executive John Flint back in August, felt that he was not moving quickly enough and aggressively enough to turn the bank around, and appointed Noel Quinn who was then head of the commercial bank as an interim CEO and kicked off this process, which he said would take six to 12 months. Now we're at seven months and where are we? Well, last week we were told that the bank had narrowed this to a two-horse race, Jean-Pierre Mustier on one side and Noel Quinn on the other. Mr Mustier pulls out and then we're told, no, no, it's not a two-horse race. There are some other horses out there and we're still talking to them. So this is all starting to look like a little bit of a mess for Mr. Tucker, and he's coming under increasing pressure, we hear, from investors to resolve this issue. So I don't think we'll be waiting for much longer, but he certainly hasn't covered himself in glory in this. No, but we might get a a winner of the two, three, four, however many horse race it is. Yeah, if you want to call it that. Okay, well, uh, we'll see what happens. And finally today, J.P. Morgan. Over the weekend, we learned that it had become the latest big US bank to attempt to enter the crowded British retail market. And my colleague, Nick McGaw, discovered that it has lined up a former senior city regulator in Clive Adamson to chair its new digital operation, which is due to open later this year. Rival Goldman Sachs has already made inroads into the UK banking sector with its Marcus Savings Account brand, which came to Britain in 2018. But JP Morgan seems to be aiming for a wider audience by offering lending products as well. So could it shake up the market and win significant share? Nick is here to tell us. This is a big player with deep pockets entering a competitive market. What's it going to do? Well, we should preface everything I say here with a caveat that it's very early days for this project. JPM haven't technically acknowledged that it's actually happening yet. But from what we do know so far from talking to other people who are a bit closer to it, the bank seems to be taking this pretty seriously. Clive Adamson, as you mentioned, was head of supervision at the Financial Conduct Authority, pretty big name. And he stepped down from the board of Virgin Money late last year to do this job because of the conflict of interest. The fact that there's a conflict of interest suggests they expect to be building a proper retail bank. The most obvious comparison is Goldman Sachs, who to great fanfare launched Marcus savings accounts in 2018. But potentially, actually, a 
more accurate comparison would be people like Santander and ING, who are both like JP Morgan, big banks that have existing traditional retail banking expertise, but who have been using kind of new digital only initiatives to expand relatively cheaply in new markets. I mean, in their cases, they've been doing it in places like Germany, but JP are looking at doing it in the UK. What that means for the incumbents, again, it depends on what exactly they do, but Marcus drove up costs of deposits for a lot of smaller banks, especially who rely on savings accounts to fund their lending. If JPM wants to actually lend, however, that's a bigger concern for big banks as well. There have been lots of new banks trying to break into the space in the last couple of years. People like Monzo do overdrafts, start looking at personal loans, but they don't have that much experience in lending. JP Morgan know what they're doing, and this will be something that execs are watching very, very closely. Exactly. When you get a name of this size, it could potentially make quite an impact. I mean, how much do we know about its plans? Take the point, it's very early on, and only just lined up Mr Adamson. What do we know so far? We know they've been working on it for a good couple of months, since at some point last year at least. We know that it's likely to be a digital-only initiative. The suggestion is that it will start at least with savings accounts, similar to Marcus, but also do lending. We don't yet know what sort of lending they'll be doing, and that can make a big difference. I mean, if you start getting JP Morgan offering mortgages, the mortgage market is already super crowded, that would be a huge deal. And is there a possibility that they will be able to get in on the sort of digital ground floor before some of the incumbent players? Well, it's interesting because other big American banks have tried to break into the UK in the past, and it's not that easy. Citibank has had various UK iterations, none of which have been particularly successful. In a way, the fact that JP Morgan have come to it late might end up helping them because they'll be coming to a stage where they've now got such good technology that they can come in at relatively low cost and make it even in a competitive market. Well, it sounds like there is some third mover advantage potentially here. Thank you for that. Nick, that's all for this week. My thanks to Nick McGall, to Stephen Morris, David Crow, and our special guest, Sir Mike Rake. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banks. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.